Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Lambert, Hendricks and Ross, and my petite bijou. I've got the uh, wonderful Kevin Godley here, famous for Godley and Cream, uh, 10cc, of course. We're talking today with Kevin about his influences. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Good to be here. As well as your influences, we'll be covering some uh, new material of yours from your new album, Muscle Memory, later in the podcast as well, won't we? I hope so, yes. <laughs> Before we get into My Petite Bijou and the, the sort of spark of inspiration in relation to what that inspires you on, um, I'd just welcome your view as a, an artist in terms of 
when you listen to a piece of music and you you start almost copying it, but then it becomes something as it, of its own and, and unique. Is that what you've you've typically done at, at certain points in in your career? Then that you've you've taken an idea and then it's kind of morphed into something else. I think so. I mean, I think I think most most musicians when they start off, they they look to other musicians who are more successful than them or better musicians than them as as mentors or role models and. I think it's a natural thing to try and copy them, uh, and that forms their taste buds. I think it, it, it seeps into their DNA over the years. But eventually, once once they find find their own voices, it kind of becomes part of their subconscious. Um, and if they draw on those things, it's a subconscious thing. It's never, oh gosh, I really want to sound like Jeff Beck. I really want to sound like Ginger Baker. It doesn't work like that anymore. It just it just soaks into you like a sponge. That particular track that you played, Bijou by Lam- Lambert Hendricks and Ross, it was part of my fascination with jazz in, in, in the early 60s. And they were quite unique in that there weren't many jazz-based vocal groups. And that particular song, for some reason, stayed with me for many years. Uh, and when we recorded a track called My Body, The Car, I forget which album it was, it was, it was for. I don't know if it was for Birds of Prey or Ismism. Yeah, Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey. I think once we'd actually recorded it, that it suddenly clicked where that had come from, if you know what I mean. Again, it wasn't, it wasn't a, conscious, a conscious decision to copy it, but that sort of feeling was there when we were doing it. Were you into sort of jazz then in the early 60s? It's not something that you came to later. Was that part of what was your formative influences then? Very much so. I was into I was into modern jazz, bebop, American musicians, mostly uh, people like Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, Cannonball Adderley, uh, Charles Mingus, that whole, that whole scene. Uh, and I remember... Mm. I think Long Cream and I drove down to London um, from college over a weekend to uh, to stay over and watch um, Roland Kirk play at Ronnie Scott's, which was extraordinary. Roland Kirk, if you don't know, was an American musician who could play about three or four or even five sometimes wind instruments at the same time. That was extraordinary. But yeah, jazz was great. We used to, I used to have a little autocrat kit that I used to sling in the back of the car. And me and Lol would go to private parties and, and, and sort of jam all night. It was very, very beat <laughs> back in those days. <laughs> uh, that's what we did. My body is the car that I've been driving around for 36 years My body the car Slowly burning out the rubber And stripping the gears My body the car Remember the time when a cigarette burnt a hole in my skin there was nobody in to put out the fire Lust in the skin on a rumbling road Where the CB kids all mumble in code You're a liar You're a liar 
And if the telephone rings, it'll be my doctor telling me to cool it. Oh, yeah. I don't want no x-rays or any brand new drug you've never tried. I don't want no hoorays dressed up as doctors poking around inside. I'll always be a My body the car. My body is the car that I've been driving around for 36 years. My body the car. Slowly burning out the rubber and stripping the gears. My body the car. There's a man with a suitcase with a whole bunch of shirts and magazines Selling roadmaps and Bibles and Ben's of dreams For days and nights I stare at the mirror And the days and nights they stare back at me My body the car is a little older My body the car still looking good My body the car I need hard shoulder My body the car to look under the hood My body the car still ticking over I don't know why it should She's leaking oil The color of blood My body the car 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 She drives me crazy When she rattles and shakes She makes me nervous She ain't got no brakes My body the car My body the car My body the car that was part of what you did is ventured into becoming a musician on a professional basis was starting off in, in those private parties and eventually that morphed into something more professional. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we were we were even thought of doing it professionally. It was just kind of a cool thing to do and we, we loved doing it. And, and back then, being the thought of being a professional musician, you know, it, it, it was off the rails. It wasn't the kind of thing that you did. It wasn't a proper job, as as parents might call it. So it was it was a blast, and it's what we did at weekends. And we also used to the other thing that we used to do on Saturday afternoons. Uh, we used to go into Manchester because there were a number of music shops in Manchester, like like Barrett's, Reno's, Mamlock's, and so on and so forth. And you could hang out there and, and try the instruments and, and sort of jam with people who came in. It was a very free, very free time. And I think Barrett's, if I remember correctly, they had a little demo studio at the back of the shop that if you were lucky and you happened to be there at the right place at the right time, you could, you could actually jam on tape. <laughs> I never actually got to do that, but other people did. We talked about that jazz influence, but um, I assume like many artists of, of your generation, uh, The Shadows, basically did that mark a sort of shift from that j- jazz scene into The Shadows then? Because you, you've chosen uh, Apache as, as one of your formative uh, influences as well. I have. And I think that's be- because of how I used to hear that music. Mm. Um, I think twice a year at least, a fairground used to come into Heaton Park, which is near where I live, and we'd all pile into the fairground and you'd hear this electric music, but you'd hear it on the waltzes and on the dodgems with that kind of metallic rattle going on and people screaming. It worked better that way than listening to it on a record deck. But yes, and strangely, it was never. It was not particularly not Cliff, Cliff Richard particularly that was deemed to be cool back in those days. It was the shadows. 
Mm. And they were. They were they were extraordinary. That guitar sound just came out of outer space. I heard that you first tried to pick up the guitar. <laughs> was it the shadows who yeah. kicked you off there? It was. I mean, I, I don't know how I managed to end up in, in, in a band at all, really. Um, I played bass on a six-string Hofner Club 50. Right. And I was pretty bad. No, I, I was very bad. <laughs> but back then, you know, playing in a band, you if you were influenced by the shadows, you were copying their dance steps as well as trying to put notes together at the same time. And I was terrible at that. So I didn't stay doing that for long. I quickly migrated to, to drums. So you took the Shadows influence, but um, added a bit of sort of reggae to Submarine, which you um, did uh, with uh, Godling Cream then? That's right. It's a funny one. I'd be, I'd be, yeah, I don't know where that came from, but it's got that twang. It's got that feel, but the, but the percussion mm. uh, and the rhythm section is very dark. It's very reggae. But 
I seem to recall that we were we wanted Hank Marvin to play the lead part on that, but which I, th- I think he wanted to do. But again, it's one of those times when our diaries couldn't match up. Ah. But that would have been that would have been a match made in heaven. That's something that you. Um that in Godly and Cream that you were known for is basically having that spark of an idea. And then if you thought of getting someone involved in, in one of your albums, you just went for it, no matter what genre or field they were, were yeah, on. I mean, that word genre, it's it's a relatively contemporary word, isn't it? I don't think anybody used it back mm. in the late 70s or early 80s. And we never really felt that we were... We were working in a particular style of music. You know, it was everything we mm. we did was was a mixture of a number of different things. So the thought of actually asking somebody who was a bit off the wall to do something was never, it was never, oh, God, we can't do that because it's the wrong kind of music. It was like, well, if it is, it will make it more interesting. Then. So, no, we didn't have any fear. Yeah. I'm not sure Submarine made any of your albums. I think it might have been a standalone uh, single. Was it? Was there a particular reason for that? Did it just not fit? Oh, uh, it may have even been a B-side for mine. I know it morphed into a song at some point. Right. Yeah. Called the Power Behind the Throne. Yeah. But in, in its early stages, I, I can't recall. I don't know. I mean, occasionally we used to go in the studio and just do, do stuff for the sake of it. So. It could have been one of those sessions, I guess. Is that sort of the track that would um, evolve out of a jam, or, or would no, it? No, it's a good question. It may well have morphed out of a jam, mm. or just playing in the studio, because, I mean, whenever the two of us sat opposite each other to write songs, I had a notebook and a pen, and he would play either a guitar or a keyboard, and I'd start singing. And I can't hear myself going. (laughs) So it may have been one of those things that came out of just playing in the studio. But it works. It's a a very strange track, but it's quite nice. I'll tell you where Mm. the sound of this thing is this strange chord thing. I think it's called an omnichord. This sort of. Yeah. It's a, it's a strange instrument. It's it's you don't really have to understand chords to play it. It's got buttons and it's got like a, a sort of textured pad that you can strum, and it's got a built-in rhythm box. And I think that that created the basic backing track and the bass as well, which played along automatically. And then I think we worked on top of that. So I don't think. It, and then I probably added the drums at a later date. But yeah. I may have been inspired by this Omnicool.
Our next influence is uh, Marvin Gaye, I Heard It Through the Grapevine. And um, something that um, I'm very aware of in, in, in speaking to many musicians who um, were sort of teenagers in the mid to late 60s was the influence of Tamla Motown. Oh, God, huge, yeah. huge influence on, on the sort of beat guitar scene, really. Again, a, a bit like The Shadows, was did that mark a shift for you as well? It did. I mean, all these shifts we're talking about, it's like sidestepping into something else, but the where you were doesn't ever go away. Yeah. I mean, the whole soul music thing, I think I must have been at art college by now, um, mid, mid to late 60s. Um, we were all wearing tank tops and, mm-hmm. and 22-inch flares and going out and drinking gin and orange and getting pissed and dancing all night, um, which was great. But Motown was the perfect music to dance to. Yeah, It was amazing. It was sophisticated, but it was also as cool as hell. It was just, you could not sit down for longer than five minutes if you were listening to a Motown track. And indeed, Stax, mm. those two labels were, were led us through the 1960s and taught us so much. I always wanted to sing like Marvin Gaye. Yeah. He was, he, I felt, was the, the most amazing singer. Um, Steve Levine, record producer. He did these, he did a series of programs, uh, radio programs, but he also did a live program that uh, Sue and I went down to in Liverpool. He, he had a Dozier. He produced um, lots of Marvin Gaye's records, and he was, he was telling a story about uh, recording How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. They had done everything. They were just waiting for Marvin to show up. Uh, which he did eventually. He was a bit, he was a bit late. Come straight from the golf course, had his clubs over his back. He put them in the corner, and uh, he hadn't learned the song, which he should have done, but he hadn't. So it was it was there on the music stand in front of the microphone, and so they just you know they started the tape and off he went. Steve had the original multi tracks during the show as well as having. Lamondozia there, he, and he took everything out so you could just hear Marvin. Wow! And you could hear him turning the pages while he sang. Well, the interesting thing is that uh, after the take, it was like, wow, that was great, Marvin. That was fantastic. Uh, I'm going to come in and talk you through it. So he goes into the studio, and Marvin had split, picked up his golf clubs, and left. So one take, that song was recorded in one take. Wow. <laughs> I hadn't even heard it. Oh, it's a Motown standard. And Lamont Dozy was telling us about the whole session, and it was a piece of our musical history that we've, you know, lent on all these years, and it was just, it was a throwaway. Extraordinary.
genius. His vocal tone, especially on that song, I heard it through the grapevine, just lifts it even higher because it's an incredible song. Oh. But when you have his, his his vocals on top of that, it, it just turns into sort of magic. Yeah, it does. It makes our our sort of response to it, wedding bells, sound a little turgid. <laughs> <laughs> a little turgid. I mean, it just it just swings and it lilts and it's honey, you know. Ah, they don't make them like that anymore. But you mentioned wedding bells. Yeah. Did you actively think it'd be great to do a, a, some bit of a, a sort of Motown feel? I think we may well have done. Uh, I, I'm not sure we thought that while we were writing it, but when we came to actually record it, it, it just, it was a natural thing. Uh, and it just it just moved in that direction. And um, it was an easy song to sing. So yeah, it was it was it was most definitely an attempt to come up with our own version of a soul song. That's for sure. But when you had a, a particular song, did you often try out different arrangements of it? You know, radically different arrangements, and to try and get to the essence or, or work out what fits. Or, or did many times you had just have a an idea uh, of what what the sound would be. No, it's a funny thing. I mean, I know a lot of bands do that, but we we didn't really do that that often. We just kind of went for it. If if we had, I can't think of many occasions where we actually stopped and thought, "This is crap. Let's start again in, in a completely different way." I think that we had good instincts about how mm. something should be uh, arranged, and even if that particular take wasn't great we do another take and we 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 just follow our noses or our ears and and just keep adding and subtracting until it made sense to us we we i mean i think probably wedding bells is probably an exception to the rule Mm. in that we we were looking for a kind of soul sound where everything else didn't really have a reference point for the most part we were just going for stuff and what came out at the end of the process was whatever it was it's kind of sloppy way of working, but it seemed to work for us. And you mentioned that with the shadows, you you were practicing your dance routines, but um, in <laughs> Wedding Bells itself, the video, you've got yeah. that Motown dance routine on on the go there. Oh boy, don't remind me of that because we, yeah. was that a bit of fun? Well, it was for me, but it wasn't for Lol. I mean, it was his idea. <laughs> it was um, it was like okay, so what are we going to do for this? And you know, the idea was staring us in the face. <laughs> we were sort of tiptoeing around it, but it it just had to be done, didn't it? I mean, <laughs> um, but Law was was kind of he didn't feel comfortable about doing it at all, and I th- I think if you watch the video closely, you can sense that. I loved I it. That, I was, yeah, I was in my element because I was out front um, trying very hard to be black and failing miserably, <laughs> but enjoying every second of it. Yes, it was a bit of fun. I mean, the whole thing of, you know, being choreographed and wearing the shiny suits and everything <laughs> and all the bits and pieces. But yeah, it was it was it was great fun. And it was a hit record, so you know, it had everything going for it.
understand The only words you want to hear Are do you take this man Let's go into the 70s now. You've picked Virginia playing by Roxy Music. And I mean, that song is just like a shot of adrenaline. I mean, it must have been so amazing to, yeah. to hear that song for the first time when it was first released. It was. It was the 70s was a funny old period. It was almost like a period of transition where things were still kind of hanging over from the 60s, that kind of hippie, aesthetic was still very much to the fore. But something contemporary was was kind of trying to break through, at least in England. And I think Roxy Music was one of the first sort of signals that it was here to stay. What it actually what it actually was was wasn't uh, that easy to define. But that caught the spirit of it. It it sounded contemporary. It didn't seemed to dwell on musicianship as much as atmosphere. It didn't dwell on technique as much as feeling. It didn't, it, and it just sounded kind of more urban. I think the 60s was more about, you know, getting, mm. getting it together in the country, where this was sounding like getting it together in the city. Uh, and that was the big change somehow. And that, they were very much at the forefront of all that change. Make me a 
assume you were you're predominantly based at Strawberry uh, Studios at Stockport at the time. Yep, yep. You're, you're kind of listening to a lot of um, uh, hit records and, and albums at the time and, again, porting some ideas and influences into the stuff that – because I think you were, you were doing a lot of uh, songs for hire at the time as well. I mean, what was the sort of balance of just getting stuck into whatever projects and actually, actually having your antennas out for new music and porting that back into what you were doing? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot going on in the sixties, but as you say, we were we were kind of guns for hire in the early days, both as, as a house band and as a produ- as producers. So uh, professionally, we were we were doing all sorts of mad stuff in the studios, and it wasn't rock and roll music. It was it was crazy. I mean, I've said this a million times, but it it was more like yeah. being in Broadway, Danny Rose, than in a rocky than a rock and roll band. It was just it was just mental, the stuff we were doing. Comedy stuff, spoken word stuff, and, you know, TV producers, girlfriends of football teams and ventriloquists and all sorts of mental things. I mean, eventually morphed into a, quite a long uh, series of projects that came out of Cazenet's Cats in New York where Graham was working, and he brought the projects um, back to Strawberry. And we again became the house band for must have been about a dozen tracks, supposedly for different bands with different names. But yes, in, in amongst that, we were listening to stuff. We all had completely different tastes. I was sort of drawn more towards what was coming as opposed to what was already there. Right. And whatever tune was on seemed to somehow coalesce when we got down to doing our own stuff, which was uh, unexpected, but great. 
standing in my face is, is a good is a good example of that. Yeah. So is is there a bit of a, a lineage or, or link with Virginia planning to yeah. uh, sand in my face? Sort of. That I'm not exactly trying to channel Brian Ferry, but I am listening to it in my head when I'm singing it somehow. That kind of warble, that kind of less about a melody and more about sort of the sharp edges of what's going on is the only way I can describe it. So, yeah, suddenly my face owes, owes something to, to Moxie Music. The debut 10cc album, was that um, was that recorded pre-Donna, your, your hit, or, or was it sort of post-Donna to sort of capitalise on the success? It was very much post-Donna, and it was done pretty quickly as well. I think it was done in about... The whole thing was done in about three weeks. Wow. Including writing songs. I mean, we probably had a few fragments already in the, in the can, but it was like we'd released on it. It, was a, it got to number two in the charts, and then we'd released Johnny Don't Do It, which died a death. Mm. And I can't remember if we'd already had a hit with Rubber Bullets, but that was sort of in the, in the traps waiting to go. But somewhere around about that time it was decided we, we better get an album together. So in we went. And being young and fearless, we just we just boiled over with ideas. And I think that was that was the point where we became ourselves, where we found our voice as a group because we weren't there was no time to consider whether it sounded like our heroes or not. It just was what it was. And we just put it down and we moved on and we put it down and we moved on. So it was really totally, the whole thing was intuitive and instinctive. And there's great tracks on that album, some really formative tracks. I mean, that was the great thing about 10CC is that you had so many different influences, but when you listen to those first few albums, they're unique, uh, they're varied, um, they're humorous. It couldn't be anyone else. It couldn't, but... Just to go back to the to the beginning, yeah. where we were brought up and where we hung out and and everything during those formative years, there were there were so many places to go. You know, in, in, in Manchester there was the Oasis Club, the Jigsaw, the Young Frau, Mr. Smith's, the Three Coins, the Twisted Wheel, the New Century Hall. There was there was like six cinemas, God knows how many coffee bars. It was you couldn't go out of an evening without going to see a live band and some bloody big ones too. You know, the Rolling Stones, some of the soul reviews coming through town. Mm. You name it, we saw them. It, it's, it was in our blood. It's, uh, it, was a, it was a great time to, to move through, snake through the music business and find our own way. What did you see? I saw Mr. France 
tell you about Alex. He's got hands like hands, hands like hands, knees like trees, knees like trees, two hundred pounds. We have another Godly and Cream track, I Pity Inanimate Objects now. That's famous now for the use of the harmonizer. But again, are you kind of including that because a bit of a tie to Roxy music? No, I included it because it's a jump away from anything. <laughs> it's utterly insane. I mean, it marks a shift. It's a major shift because I think at that time when we recorded the album that uh, Inanimate Objects is on, we'd already done the whole Consequences trip, which was a commercial nightmare. So we had nothing to lose. And um, it's funny what inspires a particular track, but as you quite rightly said, this one was inspired by a piece of equipment, which doesn't happen very often. And us using it the wrong way. And it just fell together. It was just insane. The idea of inanimate objects being pitied was a bizarre idea, but in order to create the sound that meant that, I I sang the original vocal on one note all the way through. Wow. As if that as if it was trapped. It couldn't sing any more than one note. And it was only when we put it through the harmonizer keyboard that it was allowed to be set free, as it were. But it's a very such a strange trap, but I do love it. It it's sort of a Creatively, I think it's one of my favourite tracks that we ever did, really. Yeah. If not the favourite track. And putting voices through a, a keyboard, that was that was something that um, you first did possibly with um, I'm Not In Love a few years previous. But that was, yeah, but that wasn't a keyboard. That was, don't forget. Oh, that was the, you were pl- actually playing the tapes with the, yeah. the mixing desk. That's actually right. I mean, the principle is the same. 
It's just that yeah, but the technology of, wasn't there. There was no technology there. <laughs> well, you know, it was it was sort of very crude analog technology. But I mean, that was the fun there. Then I guess back in those days, you 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 used what you had, and you thought of ways of making sounds with whatever was to hand. It it wasn't. It was that was part of the fun, cobbling things together. As things progressed and as analog became digital, it became easier. Mm. But you know that part of the process has disappeared now. You just dial up a sound, and there it is. <laughs> and you better have something good to do with it. <laughs> that was a great period. We were working in uh, Sorry Sound Studios at the time, sixteen track, and we were pretty much left alone to um, do what the hell we wanted. Yeah, I mean that that sort of sparked off. A- interesting point because you were working against the limitations of the technology of the time but then that created new ideas but at the same time there was new technology and, and digital starting to come in which again sparked off new ideas so yeah. a, a real sort of creative crucible as the limitations that you have against the new things that are coming in and experimenting absolutely i mean when wherever we were working at the time it became an incubator for all these things happening at the same time as we were introduced to uh, new bits of equipment, we kept thinking of ways to abuse it, uh, <laughs> which I'm not exaggerating. It's like, okay, it's designed to do this, but what would happen if you did this instead? You can't do that, but what would happen if you did it? Well, no, please. And by doing that, you, you, you move the technology forward because it wasn't designed to do something. Therefore, if you if you apply it in a, in a slightly more lateral way, nine times out of ten you'll come up with something that you didn't expect. I think that's that's a key to everything we were doing at that point. We were we were looking under stones to find other things crawling underneath that we didn't know existed, uh, both technologically and musically. So yeah. it was fun. It was it was great fun. Everything you know if if. The idea of going into a studio and doing something and knowing exactly how you wanted it to sound was anathema to us. It was like, what was the point? Mm. Let's just go in there. We've got a song. Let's see how, you know, let's try and fuck it up as much as we can (laughs) and see what what comes out the other side.
Now we have the brilliant oh, David Byrne at the Talking Heads, Once in a Lifetime. I guess a bit like Roxy Music at the, at the sort of dawn of the 70s, at the dawn of the 80s, you've got the talk, Talking Heads there and a song that just hits you over the head with its brilliance. Yeah. I mean, they were amazing from the off. We liked, you know, what came out of punk and, and all that, uh, which turned into new wave. But the thing about Talking Heads was, it was the first thing in the 80s that sounded like art somehow. Mm. Um, it sounded clever. It sounded... It had some kind of intention behind it. It had a feeling that we hadn't heard before. And it wasn't, again, it wasn't all about great singing or great this and great that. It was just something all of its own. We loved everything that they did. Keep remembering the concert films to uh, stop making sense. Yeah, the whole that whole vibe. And did you see the the new the show? Is that where David's wearing that big suit? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. But I mean, the current show, not the current. I think it's finished. Oh, okay. No, I haven't seen that. Oh well, they made a film of it. Spike Lee's made a film of it called I think it's called American Utopia. It should be on Netflix soon. But what a show that was. We saw it, I think, a year ago at least, if not two. Fantastic show. But everything that David Byrne does is David Byrne. I mean, (laughs) if you're into David Byrne, you're into what he does. And that's sort of, it's just very clever and very very smart and very good.
And as an artist, hearing that blast of great new music, does that make you feel we'd be kind of need to up, up our game as peers have, have done something fantastic? Does it have a knock-on, or, or are you in, again in your own bubble? Yeah. No, we, you know, we are in our, our own bubble, but occasionally stuff leaks in, mm. uh, and that was something that that leaked in. It's It was a, a shot of adrenaline Yeah. Uh, that, that comes from the outside and you... You know, you take it in and it sits there and it comes out something else uh, and it influences something something that you do. In this case, I picked a track called The Party. Yeah. Which, again, is is very much of a kind of dance groove, but, but very personalised to what was happening to us at the time. Uh, it's about a real party at my house. But it's got that kind of American groove going to it, um, which was great to do. Yeah, all those spoken words where you've got someone boring you to death, kind of saying that um, they're not keen on the avant-garde music, and they, you know, they prefer the sort of melodic stuff, and they're not keen on videos or whatever. And you're just having to sort of give them soft soap, yeah, and sort of trying to go away. Yes, exactly. And all the people mentioned in, in the lyrics are real; <laughs> they're all real people. In terms of the party, do, do you um, map out? Into, that's about eight minutes. Is that something that you jammed again, or would you kind of think, well, actually, we need the song to sort of build at a particular point in line with where you are with the the, the lyrical side of it? I think we, uh, if I remember correctly, which track, which album is this? Is this is this Ismism? Ismism, yeah. And was Snack Attack on Ismism? Yeah. So okay, so this period was after I'd slipped a disc, right? And I spent most of this period lying on my back. I couldn't sing that well lying on my back, so I did it. So a lot of the, uh, the stuff, like the party, is sort of semi, semi raps and semi spoken word, like snack attack. But this party was recent, and I think we just had the groove. We were just lol had put down a number of different things. Yeah. And it was just a great groove. I don't think there were many chord changes in it. So it was just a matter of throwing, throwing some words at it and see what, what fitted. 
which which was about this party. <laughs> it just felt it just felt right. It had that it had a very kind of up groove to it, which was kind of unusual for us. But it was great. It went on a bit. <laughs> it's quite a long. <laughs> it was quite a long track. Was it the last track on the album or the first track? I can't recall. But uh, the last uh, last track, which is quite fitting, really. Yeah, that no, was great fun. It was a great track to do. Yeah, but it's a bit like all parties out there. They they go on. They, sometimes they're quite extended. Yes, exactly. People take twenty three minutes to go. <laughs> and, uh, goodbye, goodbye, go fuck off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In the middle of the top by the gate On the grass with the crass bots wagging the slate Whose is it? Mine You're kidding, it's great I just love the way he's used the car like an empty canvas And let the rust eat itself into the overall design With such devastating spontaneity David, you're ignoring me, come here Would you have to fuck to get a drink around here? It's art, David, neo-functional mannerism. Cerebral but bleak, it's one star for a shake that chic. One star for a shake that chic. One star for a shake that chic. You're a cocksucker, Michael. You are what you eat, David. Who's the man? Who's the targets on the band man? 
now we have the uh, the trio of new material from Muscle Memory, and um, I guess a, a bit like much of your work, there's always an interesting or unique angle to it. And the interesting, unique angle for me for this was that um, artists submitted their music for this, and you sifted through them and sort of decided which you were going to work on lyrically. Well, that's some of the approach uh, taken with muscle memory. Yeah, but I mean, the reason the reason I went down that road was because, well, being a drummer, it's it's hardly the it's hardly the best instrument to write songs with. I I need to react to, to chords to do what I do, and so now I'm not working with anybody at that level, and just coincidentally, out the blue, I think it was in 2016, it must have been. Two people completely independent of each other that I didn't know sent me pieces of instrumental music asking if I'd be interested in writing and performing a song over them. It's like, well, okay, (laughs) I'll give it a shot. And I did, and it actually turned out very well. They're actually on the album. One is is Periscope and the other one is um, Expecting a Message. Mm. It It was very exciting to work like that, so I kind of figured... What an interesting way to approach an album. So I kind of kicked that door open and via Pledge Music asked people, when I say people, I mean musicians, non-musicians, anybody, to send me pieces of their instrumental music that they'd be interested in me turning into a song. And that's exactly what happened, although I wasn't quite expecting to get 286 pieces. (laughs) I thought maybe, you know, 50 or something, if I was lucky. But uh, once the process, you know, kind of got into gear, it was, it was, it was great. And I was writing while the world was changing and reacting to that lyrically, really. I had no idea when it began what I was going to write about, but this bizarre shifting of tectonic plates was, was giving me a great deal of information to turn into songs, which is, which is great. Not very cheerful, I'll admit, but stuff nevertheless. I've read that uh, Cut to the Cat, the lyrics for that actually, or the spoken word element actually came from a screenplay. Yeah, I'd, 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 uh, along with a friend of mine, a writer called Adrian Devoy, we'd written a screenplay about um, a TV production company and trying to think of an idea for to save their company going under, something really devastatingly controversial and modern. And uh, the film is called Where the Treetops Listen. And I was going into a rewrite, so and I had these scraps of thoughts about them discussing what they couldn't, can't, could and can't, couldn't do. I just thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll try singing this over this great track that I had from an Irish composer called Rory Coleman. And it worked. Hmm. <laughs> It's like, okay, go away film, hello song. It's funny where these ideas come from, but they are, so long as they're there and lurking around somewhere in your head or in a notebook or or on a tape or something or other, they're fair game. You have to be careful not to alienate people Because everyone likes a little violence We need to be inclusive Show what we like, or is it in the 
Periscope earlier, and the theme of that seems to be about someone who's um, hemmed in at home, which you are sort of paranoid, and and the the current climate has a bit of sort of link in, into that, really, where someone might want to sort of tuck themselves away. Well, it does, but that was the so that was written in like 2017. <laughs> so 
I'm, I'm way ahead of a horrible curve. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, re- it's really about, again, it's about reacting to how the world was changing. And in this case, the character didn't feel comfortable about the way the world was changing. And he was getting kind of paranoid about it because he was saying all the wrong things. <laughs> he was, I think, what's called tone deaf today. He's hanging on to the way he'd lived before, but things were changing around him. And his friends were not were looking at him funny and, and come on, come on, get with it, get with the programme. And he, he can't. And so he gradually, gradually retreats into the basement of his house and, and, and gently goes mad, mad to a degree. It's really about paranoia. People watching you and panicking that you're not, not holding your end up. Is it June or July you've, you've been releasing the, each song from the album incrementally towards its, its final release? Yeah, it's the, uh, I think it's the last song is going to be released this coming Thursday. And each time we've released a track, it's the, the sort of plays and the streams and the interest has grown, which is very gratifying. Mm. Uh, when we began, it was like, well, who is this old guy coming out of nowhere playing this weird stuff? <laughs> um, but that's changed considerably, I'm glad to say. It's been really exciting for me to work with uh, the label, the 51 State the Conspiracy, because they are intimately clued in to the way things work today. And I've learned a lot. And, that, and I've also been given the opportunity to do all the design work as well, uh, guide the little ambient videos that have been made. And I made a proper video for one of the tracks and uh, design the album sleeve and the inner sleeve and the booklet that's coming out with it as well. Been a blast. Really has. I assume there was the, the the collapse of pledge music meant that you kind of had to shift focus in terms of how you were going to release the album. I was very sad because pledge music was such a good idea, but but I I don't know what happened there. I don't think anyone mm. knows a hundred percent. But it basically meant that that uh, not just me, but everybody on the on pledge music who had a project, unless they'd got the money they were after out before it went down, they got nothing. Neither did any of the people that pledged. They got nothing either. They didn't get that money back. I didn't get the target budget I was aiming for to complete the album. So a lot of people were left high and dry. And in my case, I just I started shopping around labels, um, small independent labels. And uh, State 51 were the people who came to me and said, this is a great idea, we want to do it with you. And uh, they shelled out enough for me to complete the finished product, which was, which was great. And uh, we're having a good time. Taylor Swift, I ain't, but uh, let's see what happens next. <laughs> Think I'm going to need some help In the days to come my neighbors are watching the house in case I do a bad thing. They think I've lost it, they avoid me like the plague. Take the long way around me in case they catch what I've got. And I'm sorry if I 
so sorry if it's treason, but it seems everybody I know is glued to a screen, and they're all following someone. But the only one following me is my shadow, and I can't stop looking at the sky. I can't stop looking at the sky I've been looking for a way out But I think I found a way in Silence is the golden rule I've given up thinking Silence is the golden rule I've given up talking
And we got to the, the last song, and it is, of course, from Muscle Memory, and it's a song of hate. And um, I think there's a theme in our discussions is about that shot of adrenaline. Mm. And uh, this song, in, in its own way, is a bit of a shot of adrenaline. It, it does seem a, a bit like um, the Kevin Godley, How Do You Sleep? Or <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's a funny one. Um, it's, I guess... The lyric is, is a Frankenstein monster of, of various people that I've known in my working life who have either behaved appallingly or been so inept, it's staggering. Um, and no one will ever know that. No one will ever know their names, but I know who they are. <laughs> and their impossible imperfections needed to be celebrated so that's what this song is all about really and it's funny really when when you have bad experiences with people they do seem to knock you back at the time but but something always good comes up out of it you know it's it's you learn stuff and you move on is it john lydon who once said anger is an energy yes big time exactly and it was it was written this song was written with gautier by the way wow did he present you with a, a number of, of tracks then? He did. He sent me six pieces of music, uh, but in, in, in unusual ways. They were all kind of combinations of loops, almost like a musical collage, and this was one of the musical collage set. I'm trying to remember what the original title was. Dance of the Siamese something. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, all the titles of all the tracks are way, way different to what they ended up being. I remember the original title of All Bones of White was YK Blue. <laughs> but yeah, no, and working with everyone was different. So it, it was kind of my job to listen to the bits that I like and string them together, which I did in this case. And then Song of Hate came out over the top of it. The last one's out this Thursday, and it's called Bullet Holes in the Sky, another cheery song. Yeah. <laughs> in Song of Hate and it reminds me of a, a, one of a John Lennon's outtakes later in his career when he, he found his inner scouse <laughs> at the end yeah but you found your inner Mancunian on this one I found my outer Mancunian on this <laughs> one I don't know where that one came from it was like I suddenly had this vision of uh, well come on then stand up look at me you bastards <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> And I remember it's quite it's quite a bizarre key to sing it, and I was really choking on that last bit, <laughs> getting it out. Um, but it, it works really well, and it's like it just kind of slams into the end uh, really nicely. Well, not nicely, but really, it's kind of cruel. But it's uh, 
I'm, you know, I'm nose to nose with somebody at that point. <laughs> and in terms of um, uh, getting muscle memory up and the, the, the sort of usual places, do, do they go to your website, kevin-godley.com, or is, is there a particular places to, to get it? You, well, it, it'll be available on, on Amazon. It'll be available directly from the record label as well, and probably other places too. Yeah. But uh, I don't know exactly all of them. I'll be putting up some announcement on the website, undoubtedly, but uh, uh, look for it on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Have you got any sort of plans for, for next year at the minute, or are you kind of just seeing how it comes? Well, I, yeah, I've got loads of things I want to do. I mean, I, I, I've been trying to get uh, a screenplay that I've written off the ground uh, for a while, but, I mean, anything to do with cinema or anything to do with theatre has... Uh, there's obviously gone on the back burner, but mm. if this vaccine turns out to be okay and we don't all grow extra heads or anything, <laughs> then um, that may that may change. The landscape may change. So I'm hoping to at least go into pre-production for the film next year with a bit of luck. And there are various other sort of digital projects I'd like to be involved with: art projects, music projects, uh, video game projects. Mm. there's plenty to do let's put it like that and and if muscle memory does okay i might even be tempted to do muscle memory too but we'll see yeah would you go back to the material that you've got or would you kind of ask for new submissions well the material i've got could probably have me making albums for the next <laughs> 20 years yeah but and there are there are a few that i know that uh, are in the that are in the mix that i would have liked to have gotten round to mm. But then it would have been, you know, it, would, it, would, it's not, it wasn't practical. There wasn't enough. Con- consequences, volume two. Oh, no, 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 we don't want to go there again. <laughs> <laughs> we do not want to go there again. Thank you. <laughs> not consequences. No, no, no. no. <laughs> but no, the, the, one of the most remarkable things about the project was, was the standard of music that I was sent and the, and, and the variety of music that I was sent. Quite staggeringly good. Mm. Uh, and staggeringly weird. I would love to go back to some of the weirder ones and spend a bit more time with them. But as I say, let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. Yeah. Well, Kevin, it's been brilliant to talk to you and, and talk about your influences. I wish you all the best for the release of Muscle Memory, which is imminent. Is it, is it the 16th, 17th of December? 17th. Yeah. 17th, I think. It's, I don't know if it's a Thursday or a yeah. Friday. It's a weird day. Yeah. December the 17th, Muscle Memory is out so you can get it just in time for christmas yes and what a great christmas present it will be i wouldn't (laughs) give it to anybody elderly though it would probably kill them but but yes good to talk to you too all the best from yorkshire (laughs) all the best from ireland (laughs) bye Thank you for keeping my 
meat and the caviar of cream. You know I count your mistakes when I can't get to sleep. You're the prime example of what to avoid. So thank you for filling the hate void. Hey, ho, I hate you so. Cause nothing 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.